Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On this episode of Cinemillennials, I talked with Oshino Rokan about Ingmar Bergman's 1957 allegorical masterpiece, The Seventh Seal, a personal favorite of mine and is often considered to be one of the greatest films ever made. The Seventh Seal launched Ingmar Bergman's reputation as a world-class director, ushered in a new era of the American movie-going experience, allowing art house and international film to become more widely exposed. It launched the career of Max von Sydow, who you know from The Exorcist, Minority Report, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Game of Thrones, and Skyrim. The Seventh Seal proved that a film could be a wildly successful and popular vessel for philosophical themes like what is the meaning of life across a wide audience. The Seventh Seal follows the story of Antonius Bloch, a knight that has just returned to his native Sweden after ten years on crusade. As he aims to leave the rocky beach he and his squire land on, he is welcomed home by death. Although initially Bloch says he's not afraid, as Death's black cloak comes closer and closer, he admits his fear and challenges Death to a game of chess in order to stay alive and perform one last meaningful deed before the end. So sit back, relax, and don't challenge Death to a board game. Hey, Oshin, welcome to the show. What was the first film you saw in theaters? And what are your favorite films at the moment? I don't quite recall the first film I've seen in theaters, mm. but my mother and I used to go out and go to Blockbuster and kind of pick up these B-movies. As far as just films that were influential from the right from the get-go, I would say the Amityville Horror was one of the first ones that really influenced me. That's intense. How old were you? <laughs> oh, God. I'd say like eight or something like that. Wow. My mom and I used to watch all these horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> That's like something I could never even conceive of as a child watching one of those kind of movies. I'd be so scared. So, so scared. So my favorite film right now, I would have to say, is Hereditary. Just because it's an incredible psychological thriller horror film. There's no jump scares throughout the film. I'm a big horror fanatic. Unlike yourself, I know. <laughs> but love my horrors. And as much as I love B-movies and crappy things you might see on sci-fi uh, and things like that, I do get sick of the jump scares like any good horror right. fanatic. Hereditary is just one of those films coming out of A2, which is just, from start to finish, a flawless mm -hmm. film, I would say, in horror. Did you have any experiences with classic films before watching The Seventh Seal? If so, do you have any favorites? Yes, I took a film class a while ago, and we watched a number of classical films, Casablanca and things like that. But as far as watching them by myself, no, not particularly. Out of that class, which ones did you like the best? I would have to be very basic and say Casablanca oh. was definitely the standout film. That's not basic at all. It's a great, great, great film. I mean, there's a reason why people think it's one of the greatest films of all time. Between the writing, the editing, the performances themselves, there's so many great things within that film and just how timely that film was and how timeless it is. It's timely and timeless all in one go. And the scenes that always are super iconic are the scenes that everybody knows, but it's also the ones that not a lot of people know at the same time, especially with the scene when they're all singing the La Marseillaise in the bar and it's like overwhelming and it's super great feeling. And I feel like that's another great thing when you first watch The Seventh Seal, when the film starts with that big, loud, Carmina Burana-inspired choir that it just bursts you into the scene and gets you stuck in. Why did you pick The Seventh Seal? Did you know anything about the film before you watched it for the show? What did you think it was going to be about? I picked The Seventh Seal strictly based on its name alone. As a historian of ecclesiastical history, seeing The Seventh Seal brings out biblical themes to me, so I thought that that was quite interesting. So I came into the movie completely cold. 
I didn't look anything up. I didn't didn't do any background research whatsoever. Mm. So, you know, you were saying when that initial choir comes booming in, and it really does come booming in, literally out of the sky, that was a shock by itself. But when they started speaking in Swedish, <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was quite the shock. Because I didn't expect that at all. I thought they might have come out in English. So mm. it was a very neat experience. Coming into a truly classical film like this is just completely cold. We were talking about ecclesiastical history. It is so deep in biblical references. I mean, the seventh seal is in Acts, right? It's the kind of apocalyptic world of the New Testament. And that chorus is like the seven angels blowing their seven trumpets into doom. They're the harbingers of death and destruction of the last days of the world. And that is really such an impactful moment. And Bergman definitely knew what he was doing there with that, because at one point in his life, he even said, if I wasn't a film director, I would be a composer. And you could definitely feel that throughout the whole film with how the music is so intertwined within what is happening in the tone of the film. So what did you think of The Seventh Seal overall? I thought it was a fantastic film. If there's one word to encapsulate The Seventh Seal, I would say it would be contrast. There's a strict contrast between the gaiety of life and the dooming you know, loom of death. And that shows up, like you're saying, not only through the music, but also in the visuals and the kind of chiaroscuro lighting that he has throughout this film as well. There are certain points within the film where you can see light coming down, kind of an angelic light, which is starkly white in contrast with everything else that kind of dims around that naturally. Just a wonderful way to, to bring out that film. So yeah, I thought the film was fantastic overall. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, this isn't the first time I've seen The Seventh Seal, and I told you that when you picked it, and I'm sure you could sense the excitement via our email. But this <laughs> film is one of my all-time favorite films because of its biblical references, because of its setting in the medieval world. And I love that you were hinting on all the chiaroscuro lighting and how that kind of contrasts between the whole movie. There's so many different contrasts, whether it be the lighting, like you said, the characters and their ideas and their philosophies, the different contrasts of the worlds that they lived in, and especially the contrast going from our main characters, Antonius Block, who's a knight that has spent the last 10 years on crusade and is coming home to his native Sweden with his squire Jans, going from being in the Holy Land, being in the Middle East, where it's dry, it's hot, they're constantly being aware of the dangers surrounding them because they are in a foreign land and in a crusade within themselves. And you know how dangerous those kind of things are. And let alone the miracle of them actually landing back in Sweden just, you know, from surviving war itself to surviving the journey, because that was not an easy journey back then. And the characters within this film are so recognizable, even still today, within our lives, with the philosophies, because the film and its characters are so timeless. And when you were saying about the lighting and the picture quality, at this time, cameras that they were using weren't that great like they were like a little bit of old news at this time and he is still Bergman and his cinematographer were still able to create this light and dark world the dark where you have death and the devil pestilence and doubt and then you have the light where you have Jesus in this situation you have the ideas of Yaf and Mia and their son Mikhail and it's so pure in this world, you have the very clear notions of the things that go on with Jans and his ideas about the world. So you do have all these different contrasts all at the same time. And I'm really glad that you ended up liking the film and thinking it was so great, as well as zoning in on those parts of the world itself and how Bergman built it. As someone who is like me, you were mentioning that you study ecclesiastical history and how much of a part that is within the medieval world. And what did you think about the medieval depiction of the world within Bergman's The Seventh Seal? Did you feel like you were transported back to that time? Like any good historian, I nitpicked the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a historical film in that sense. I don't think the director Bergman here is trying to portray it realistically. I think he's trying to portray it as a sense of the medieval world or the sense of the gloom and doom that would have been felt in the 14th century with the advent of the plague. As you know, the plague in the 14th century had come about previously multiple times, specifically 
the first big one, I think, was in Justinian's time mm. in five something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't think that I viewed it as a historical film. Right. But to see those historical influences put in there, it was well done. The art, Jans, who speaks with the artist, and his whole conversation with the artist and the artist explaining not only what the art is, but why he's doing it was a great insight. Mm-hmm. You know, Because I kind of reflected on that and looked at the passages that I've been reading and saying to myself, well, some of these art pieces that we look at are so vague that they're they're almost unintelligible. So mm. how would people have known what these things are? Obviously, they're being read these things. Most people would have been illiterate around this period of time. But they're being read these things, but they're also being told these things, just like this mm. artist is telling Jans and telling the audience in tow. So it's, it's a very similar idea there. It's really interesting that you say that because the germ of the film The Seven Seal comes from Ingmar Bergman's background. His father was a Lutheran chaplain for the King of Sweden. And Christianity was a super, and especially the medieval version of Christianity, was a massive thing in Ingmar Bergman's life, in his early life. And he is known for, in his other films, besides The Seven Seal, of exploring the nature of faith and what it means to be a faithful person and how it affects our lives, whether it be positively or negatively. And you definitely get that sense. He understands that stuff and what the meanings are. So he was around these types of medieval churches. In Sweden, they still have a lot of churches that were originally built in the Middle Ages and have preserved frescoes like the ones that we see within the church in the film. And the direct inspiration for Death Playing Chess Against a Man is an actual fresco by Piktor, who is a very famous medieval painter from Sweden that did many, many churches throughout Sweden throughout the medieval period. And there's only maybe apparently one or two references of death playing chess throughout history. And getting from one little thing within a small church in Takby in Sweden is massively interesting to see how that little germ developed into this such influential and inspiring film to so many people after it was made the whole film's kind of a memento mori isn't it when i was kind of saying transported in a way i think the film does what it does best when you're talking about in the context of putting it in the middle ages putting it more specifically in the bubonic plague he is able to get the philosophy and the theology within the medieval world and is able to translate it to our world and he's getting those ideas right where you have allegory. And allegory, as you know, is a massive thing in medieval popular culture. And especially during the nativity plays and the Easter plays and everything like that, and how important allegory is to for medieval people to understand the Bible and what it says via the priests. He's able to connect the past with the present by using the medieval period and the bubonic plague more specifically because this film was coming out in the 50s. So in a general sense, they had fear and death due to the threat of nuclear war constantly looming around them. You know, all the different threats that we have throughout the world and Sweden being so close in Europe to Russia and the context of how they were just getting over the Second World War and their quote unquote neutrality and everything. So in that sense, he applies medieval storytelling as well as costumes and set designs to the philosophies that are put forward by characters that reflect medieval ideas and themes. Absolutely, and context is king, as you've just well described there. I'd like to go back to the utter entanglement of religion into people's lives in the Mm. 14th century. I, I don't think that can be overstated, really. I mean, throughout the film, there's a sense of atheism of our main character. He's struggling with the silence of God, with the contrast with the silence of the seventh seal. Just mm. the whole the whole nugget of the story there. But God was a very real thing to these people in the 14th century. It was difficult for them to conceptualize anything but a Christian God. Mm. You know, by that time, just the sheer prevalence of it and how entangled Christianity was with these people's lives. It was their jobs. It was their government. It was their law. Every part of their lives was bent on Christianity. So... To see that throughout the film portrayed in that way, I think Bergman has done a really good job there. 
you see that massively powerful grip the church has on people in their daily lives, whether it be their superstitions when the knights are throwing dog poop at the young girl that is supposedly a witch that brought the plague on them. You have that kind of thing. But the most famous of all things about this is there are references and what you were saying within the paintings of people called flagellants. And flagellants are people that would whip themselves to put their sins to death. And it was seen as a discipline and a way to emulate the crucifixion, to feel the pain that Jesus felt when he was taking our sins away. And, you know, when I first saw the film, I was so shocked about seeing, like, I knew that context. I knew what flagellants were. I knew that they would whip themselves and go through the things that I just said, but I never saw it with my own eyes. And to see that within the film, and especially the contrast, like you are saying before, between seeing the little fun body kind of plays that they were having before that, Yoff and Mia, who are also great side but main characters throughout this film yoff and mia are performers pregenitors of actors in a way where they travel around and entertain people whether it be if they're hired by the church to do allegorical plays or they're just doing body silly kind of things like juggling and singing different folk songs you have that contrast of them having their performance and then just hearing the chants, the monks chants out of nowhere and seeing these people crying and wailing and whipping themselves. And it was just so like shocking and eye opening when you have that shift and just how you feel that fear, especially from the monk that chastises the crowd in the town, just so real and hits you so hard. That visceral feel that you get as an audience member looking at that, because you can imagine the hive mind that we experience today through the internet but you can experience mm. that in watching the film so gregory torres is a bishop torres and he's writing in sixth century from 539 to 94 in his history he talks about the justinian plague which would later become known as the bubonic plague coming to marseille and so he says i quote the infection did not spread to the residential quarter immediately some time passed and then like a cornfield set alight, 
the entire town was suddenly ablaze with the pestilence. For all that Bishop Theodora had come back and took up residence in St. Victor's Church, together with seven poor folk who remained at his side. There he stayed through the whole of the catastrophe which assailed his city, giving up all his time to prayers and vigils, and imploring God in his mercy to put an end to the slaughter and to allow the people some peace and quiet. At the end of two months, the plague burned itself out. The population returned to Marseille, thinking themselves safe. Then the disease started again, and all those who came back died. On several occasions later in Marseille, suffered an epidemic of this sort. As people think that the gloom and doom of the plague is best summed up like that, and that people have hope that it's like, okay, this plague is so bad, it's killing people so fast that nobody else can contract it, so they come back to the cities, and bam, they're killed mm. off again. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that. Look at what's happening right now. I mean, this film is such a tactful and relevant thing to our world today, especially when you look at the people that are going out and doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's fascinating to see how you have certain people almost being their own flagellants while they're not whipping themselves or anything like that. Or you can even say like the people that would have been flagellants back in the day are the people that are out in the open spreading it just as the flagellants would have because you know they have their open wounds they're out in the open air and they're spreading it whereas people now they have those ideas of where they are trying to do this kind of thing on purpose because they feel that their religious freedom or their freedom in general is being hindered by certain rules when it's like if you think that you're a christian in a way why would you think it would be good to spread something knowingly and going against that idea of what Christ was saying about the golden rule or treating people the way that you would want to be treated and how you have to be merciful, you have to treat your fellow man with the same kind of ideas that you would want to have. And to have that contradiction and have that contrast between flagellants and what they believed and what people are believing right now and doing right now is massive yeah absolutely and it's hard to look past that when you watch this film in 2021 you can't help but say oh look we're not so different from the people who are behind us and again there's that sense of contrast with Yoff and Mia Yoff and Mia have such an idealistic life and that's kind of how they're introduced into the film mm. with Yoff's vision of the Virgin Mary and the babe so to see if you were to do a deep dive into Yoff and how he might have contemplated this whole thing, to see mm. him and his visions of heaven and hell, ecclesiastical and infernal, which is another Latin term they give in the middle of the film. That was kind of neat. But to see Yoff there and have him have his idealistic life there and compare that to the church literally coming in, whipping themselves, and there's gore and blood and then fear. And, you know, what, what does a person like him think about that? I think it would have hit Yaf hard both physically and spiritually because he is going from his joyful experiences that he had with, you know, the Mary with Mary and the baby, as well as the experience that he was just having, you know, singing body songs, fun songs to this audience and with his wife, you know, the love of his life and to have to go from those kind of experiences to that harsh an invading experience within with with the flagellants and the monks wailing and hitting themselves scourging themselves because of their sins it must have been an experience that must have been very hard and it definitely contrasts with the experiences that he had before yoff sees the angelic world around him the unseen world to most people and he's able to have those elated moments like when we first meet him he's waking up he's just being joyful his own way and we hear suddenly faint music and he turns and just the slow movement and the zoom of the camera on his face you feel that elation with him
and you feel constantly throughout the film with his character how pure he is and how focused he is on just his daily life and trying to make it as well as trying to please God in his own way. It's really interesting to see how you have that contrast between Yoff, who has this very happy life, and then you have the nobleman of Antonius Bloch and how he's trying to struggle with why can't we use our senses to have God? Why can't we sense him? We know there are some hints of Antonius Bloch's doubt with his faith because we have that beginning shot of him getting up and he's praying, but is he really praying? Is he really believing in what he's saying? We get that through Max von Sydow's great performance, who he was only 26 at the time when he made this film, which is insane, by the way, <laughs> because of how much gravitas and how much hubris has this very old man feel and wisdom to himself and introspection he brings to the film. But going back to Yoth, you have that, again, contrast between the knight and Yoth and how Yoth can sense him and sense the world around him. Yoff and Jans as well, they're kind of Sancho Panza characters in a way. Mm. They're kind of tagging along on Antonius's journey, mm. you know, and they're bringing him simple wisdom in one way and simple wisdom in another. With Yoff, you have this purity, like you were saying. With Jans, you have this violence. You have a contrast between peace and violence, and they're both like the angels and devils sitting on Antonius's shoulders going through the film contemplating what purpose is there in life if there's no God. Jans, and actually Bergman has said this in multiple points, and Jans, the squire, was the main character. Bergman says that he's the main character, and you can definitely at some point feel that. You root for him while at the same time, based on who you are as a person and who you pick as your favorite characters. But he definitely gives a lot of great moments in there, like where... People have heard about this film being about this knight playing chess against death, and that is going to be super depressing and intense. But there are a lot of funny moments, and Jans is pretty much the progenitor of that feeling because he is someone that is cynical and is very snarky, but at the same time, he still does have that underbelly of fear where he doesn't know what is happening. Yes, while he makes fun of his knight, Antonius Block, he still does have that inner feeling of, okay, maybe there is something out there and I'm wrong. Jans is a very imposing figure. You know, mm. he's got these scars on his head and on his back of his head, but at the same time, he's kind of cowardly throughout the film. Anytime he's shown something gory or, or something unpleasant, he kind of you know, restricts back from it. And in talking about the comedy of the film, there's so many moments in the film where I openly laughed when I didn't expect to. Jans is coming in there talking to the smith, and he's mm. the smith is complaining about his love life, and Jans trying to cheer him up in a way, but still complaining about women. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes this whole skit. Really funny. It's great. That's what I think of what the great films differentiate themselves from good films or okay films or whatever, is that combination of you have the whole gamut of emotions within one hour and a half plus piece of art. And that's what this film is. The Seventh Seal is a piece of art because it introduces so many different ideas within this thing. Like so many directors try to have the idea of what is the meaning of life within their films. And it does not come across as well as it does in The Seventh Seal. That's definitely one of the major themes in this film, if not the major theme in the film. We can talk about the characters because the characters are so intertwined within that purpose because we all think that there could or could not be a purpose in our life. With this film, there are characters in here that aren't the most important or anything like that, but they still serve a purpose. They still serve a purpose, and that is you have so many different perspectives within this film of what the meaning of life is. What is the meaning of life according to Antonius Block, our knight? For Antonius Block, there is no purpose mm. because he's searching for that purpose. Right. He doesn't know. Right. Everything's ambiguous. And I think that's where the self-reflection comes in into not only Antonius, but the audience as well. Because that's, that's my real takeaway of the film is I sat down for a good five to 10 minutes afterwards, just kind of contemplating the film. And contemplating what does that mean compared to my own life? You know, what do I think about the greater meaning of life? That's what really cements this as a great film. 
you can say so much about the cinematography or the great score, which you haven't even touched on mm. yet. Yeah. Um, the characters and their performances, but it's really the, the introspection, which I think is, makes this a long-term film. Tony Spock is what I kind of want to touch on before was that he has this idea of what God is and his idea 10 years ago is vastly different from his experiences witnessing and experiencing the Holy Land and the Crusades. A lot of people think about the Crusades in the context of Christian versus Muslims or Deus Wult or what have you. It's not about Christians versus Muslims. That was a part of it to a certain degree, but that's not exactly the truth or the full picture. It's way too basic of a descriptor because there was also a lot of politics involved and economics involved, as well as those religious beliefs. Block knows that his time is up. And although he says he's not afraid, you know he is because he has that doubt. And he is still faithful to God via his fellow man and is almost Christ-like in his actions at the end. But throughout the whole film, he is constantly having that introspection every time you see him, really. And the only times that you really see him as in looking after his fellow man, because at some point he does say, I can't even identify with my fellow man. I can't feel anything because I can't feel anything within myself. And as he experiences the different experiences that he has with death playing the game of chess he has that communion scene where he's like i will remember this forever this is the most pure scene he doesn't have a communion scene exactly but it is as if it is a communion scene where he is eating the strawberries and the milk and it's this purity that he feels for his fellow man that he wants to have that purpose and he found the little glimmer of purpose even though he still doubts to the very end yeah, I, I didn't even realize that was a communion scene until you said that, and now mm. that perfectly makes sense. And like you were saying earlier, the Crusades, we like to think of them as the holy warriors going out and defeating the Saracens. But, of course, there's the, there's the real history behind that in which you have knights and sometimes their families and the whole retinue of people, hospitalers, going out and having to feed themselves along the way and pillaging not only Saracens but Christians as well. And the rape that was going on, the pillaging, just the sheer amount of violence and bloodshed that happened well before they ever got to Jerusalem or Antioch or wherever they may have been pointed. So I think when Antonius goes off as a knight, he may have been convinced. I mean, we see that with Jan's talking to the priest, and he says, you have your Mirabilis at Diabolus. So you have your, your miracles, both heavenly and infernal. And that's kind of telling the audience that, look, this guy sent me off to do a mission for God. But it's not just Calestus, it's not just heavenly, but it's Diabolus, it's infernal. Because mm. when he was there, he realized that, oh, that's not quite the angelic thing that I was looking for. Those are the type of feelings that he and the knight are coming back with and then reflecting on saying, okay, what did it mean for us to go out and do all those things and come back? That's exactly what they're both thinking of, the knight and the squire, and how Antonius Bach has that outward description of, I went on crusade, and some people thought that going on crusade, because the, this is what they were told, would absolve them of their sin. And his outwardness is, yeah, I'm very Christian, I'm very focused on saving the Holy Land, but at the same time, when he comes back, and he's struggling with that identity, because as we said before, as you said before, the identity of being a Christian is just being a normal person in the medieval world. It's just that idea of that's who you are and that's it. And if you betray those thoughts or if you betray those ideas within yourself, then you don't have an identity. You don't, you're not a human or you're not in that kind of sense. And he just has this kind of struggle of the silence of God and of unanswered questions about the nature of faith in relation to his thoughts and feelings in relation to his experiences in the Holy Land, as well as, you know, John's experiences. And he goes through this scene, one of the most impactful scenes and probably the most really depicting scenes of the world. Antonius Block lives in, of Jans, of Mia, Yoff, and he is struggling with the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. He has the weight and the sin of the world on him, so in that way he's very Christ-like. And at the same time, he is doubting that 
divinity. He's doubting that visible hand of God controlling over everything because of the things that he saw. And he's like, how can I justify the things that I did if there's nothing? And he wants to have that guarantee or that knowledge if there is nothing, because then life is just horror and meaningless to him. Yes, absolutely. And he explicitly demands that guarantee from death and death won't give it to him. There's a confessional scene and right after the part that you were talking about with the painter and Jan's talking and the painter is actually probably a reference to the actual painter Pictor and death playing chess in that church. But so instead of going to the secondary chapel like Jan's does with the painter, the knight immediately goes to the altar. He sees the effigy of Christ on the cross and the gnarled expression that he has, the suffering that he has, and it reminds him of his own suffering. And he sees a little cell and a monk within that cell. And he says, I want to talk to you as openly as I can, but my heart is empty. The emptiness is a mirror turned towards my own face. I see myself in it. And I am filled with fear and disgust. Through my indifference to my fellow men, I have isolated myself from their company. Now I live in a world of phantoms. I am imprisoned in my dreams and fantasies. And yet, you don't want to die. Yes, I do. What are you waiting for? I want knowledge. You want guarantees? Call it whatever you like. Is it so cruelly inconceivable to grasp God with the senses? Why should he hide himself in a mist of half-spoken promises and unseen miracles? How can we have faith in those who believe when we can't have faith in ourselves? What is going to happen to those of us who want to believe but aren't able to? And what is to become of those who neither want to nor are capable of believing? Why can't I kill God within me? Why does he live on in this painful and humiliating way even though I curse him and I want to tear him out of my heart? Why, in spite of everything, is he a baffling reality that I can't shake off? Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. I want knowledge, not faith, not suppositions, but knowledge. I want God to stretch out his hand towards me, reveal himself to me, and speak to me. But he remains silent. I call out to him in the dark, but no one seems to be there. Perhaps no one is there. Then life is an outrageous horror. No one can live in the face of death, knowing that all is nothingness. Most people never reflect on either death or the futility of life. But one day, they will have to stand at that last moment of life and look towards the darkness. When that day comes, in our fear, we make an image. And that image, we call God. You are worrying. Death visited me this morning. We are playing chess together. This reprieve gives me the chance to arrange an urgent matter. What matter is that? My life has been a futile pursuit, a wandering, a great deal of talk without meaning. I feel no bitterness or self-reproach because the lives of most people are very much like this. But I will use my reprieve for one meaningful deed. Is that why you are playing chess with death? He is a clever opponent, but up to now I haven't lost a single man. How will you outwit death in your game? I use a combination of the bishop and the knight, which he hasn't yet discovered. In the next move, I'll shatter one of his flanks. I'll remember that. And the whole thing of that just really shows what the film is. And what it's trying to explore. And it's trying to explore this idea of human relations 
within faith and with in relation to God and how we can't feel that way sometimes. Like people that are like the night where they think and they feel that they can't have that relationship because they can't see that. It's not right in front of them. And then you have, as we were kind of mentioning before, you have Yoth who sees these things and is simple in his in his mind. Like, you know, simple, quote unquote, like, you know, everything's more obviously it's right there in front of him. But also it's like simple where he's living about his joyful life. He's not focusing on all these other big questions. He's focusing on the little joys. And you can see that when he's with Mia in the way that the lighting is set up. But I mean, even besides the lighting, the way that the joyfulness that he brings to his daily life. And that just really tells the whole movie in that one scene. And I highly recommend people, if you want to understand what's happening within this film, just look up this little clip right here. It's an incredible moment in the scene. And like you said, it really encapsulates what the film is in that one scene, especially the surprise with which he recognizes the monk that he's been talking to is Mm. actually death himself. So he feels betrayed, which he feels betrayed by death throughout the entire film anyway. When I first turned on the film and when I first started watching here, I saw him start the game of chess with the death. And then there's an immediate scene change. Mm. And I thought to myself, did he actually win or not? Mm. And for a long time throughout the film, until nearly the midpoint of the film, I had that struggle of an audience member saying, well, is he dead? Or is this a vision of some sort? Or is this purgatory? Or what is this? Mm. And I think it turns out that it is real life, because then we have Yon's and Yoff in Yoff's vision. But I thought it was, a, it was an interesting way to have the audience put themselves in Antonius's seat of mm. not knowing and that being an anxiety. I actually never thought of that before where it's just like we're facing death every day and especially now you know with all the different things with COVID that we're facing that challenge every day and after that scene after it's revealed to who he was actually talking to he goes and he looks at his hand And he says, there's blood pulsing through my hand and my veins and my body. I am Antonius Block and I am playing chess with death. And he feels that life within him. And it's it's interesting to see how he has these ideas of the silence of God. And yet at the same time, he is talking to death. And he is feeling these moments throughout the film where he's noticing the impact of God within his life and how he still even further down the line when I was talking about the the woman before that was supposedly possessed by the devil had carnal knowledge of the devil as the other knights say he even goes to the depths and the lengths of finding out wanting that knowledge that knowledge that most people can't have but it's that he goes to her and says okay, maybe I can't get the idea of what God is and what his purpose for humanity is. So maybe I'll go to the devil and I'll ask him. And he still doesn't get any answers that way. And even later on when the game is over and the decisions are finally laid all on the table of what is going to happen to himself and the others within his party, there is still no answer. There's still no secret that death holds. It's an incredible frustration throughout the film Mm. that Antonius Block is literally playing chess with death. What more reality can he ask for? Mm. He has a confirmation of a being, an entity before him, and he's stuck on Christianity, of course, because he has to be. He's born Mm. in that time period. But if he can't find God, perhaps he'll find the devil. And and he looks in the eyes of these people, but he's got death standing right before him in the flesh, as it were. You know, at death, at one point, when they're picking out the white and black pieces, death chooses black. And he says, well, isn't that apt? And they've got this rapport going on. So so there's there's his reality. And I think, you know, it's a frustration for him to not have his very specific goals be achieved during the film even at the end he is it's interesting his exchange with his wife and how he's like i'm just very tired 
And that's because he knows that he is going to die. We all are going to die eventually. I know it's kind of upsetting, but even within that, with the way the film ends, it's still life-affirming, and it's still hopeful for the future, especially with the way Yoth and Mia react to all of the things that are going on and how how Antonius Block is responsible for their safety in a way and is taking on their lives in his own hands, whether it be uh, helping them through the forest or helping them realize what's going on. Don't go to Elsinore. Don't do this kind of thing because the plague's there. He takes that responsibility and he does eventually recognize his fellow man through the purity of Yoth and Mia. And he realizes the thing that he said that he wanted to do, his last good decision, he realizes what he has to do and they give him that satisfaction before the end. Definitely, definitely. And his realization that their humanity is what makes it all worth it is the major takeaway for modern audiences is the humanity of the whole thing. There's a sense of a natural state of being coming from Yoff and Mia. Their whole purity and their, like I said, the, the whole communion scene and how they are able to bring joy to everybody around them throughout the film. Because she even says, like, why do you look so solemn? And he says, faith is a very heavy burden. And mm. for them... Faith is an everyday thing. It's a thing that is con and, and by faith, I mean mystical faith is an everyday thing for them because of Yoff's visions and the purity of his visions and the joyfulness of himself and his visions. And Antonius Block recognizes that within them, meeting their baby, Mikhail, for the first time, and he sees the future in Mikhail's eyes and the future and their young eyes as well, because he's supposed to be older at this point in time, and this is at the end of his rope. He knows that when death comes to him first, he says that, yeah, I've I've been at your side for a long time. And Antonio says, yeah, I know that. I know that you've been there for the last 10 years. And he understands that, and he sees the joyful hope that the future will bring through Mikhail and through Yoff and Mia. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, there's nothing to add there. You've, you've summed it up well. <laughs> now that you've seen The Seven Seal and we talked about the themes and all of the different ideas and why it's such an important film, do you remember anything from your previous movie-going experiences, seeing different references to it in other movies? There was a part of the score, one of the first beats of the score in the film, and I could swear it was used by Monty Python in the whole <laughs> It's like the first half stanza of that beat. It's mm. it, I'm I'm gonna have to look it up at some point, but I could swear it's a Monty Python thing. In Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you have a reference right from the get-go in the title sequence. It is mimicking the opening of the Seventh Seal by having not only the like similar kind of font, but also having ridiculous. Uh, mistranslated Swedish subtitles or English subtitles that are Swedish or, you know, subtitles that have Swedish properties with the umlauts and things like that. And then you also have the monk scene in which they're hitting their heads with the Bibles when they're walking through the village. Um, and I think that's a really funny kind of way of having a little Easter egg to the flagellants in the seventh seal. There's a whole scene in Monty Python and the meaning of life where death does come and they have a whole dinner table. And it's a very funny scene, but very intense scene as well. Obviously, this film explores the meaning of life and what it is or what it could be based on what the characters believe it to be. So you have the major kind of thing from this film that a lot of other films and TV and music take from is the idea of death playing chess against somebody. And death in general, because Ingmar Bergman wanted to create this version of death where it is a combination of clown makeup and a skull. 
So you see that contrast of death, laughing at death, while at the same time taking it very seriously for what it actually is. So you use that all the time. And one of the most famous examples is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, that ridiculous movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I can so see it get, now, yes. Yeah, so you definitely get that in the Bill and Ted universe. The Muppets parodied it. I just noted this the other day, watching it for like the third time. One of my favorite things at the end where you see the light in that little window when they're all sitting together reading from the Bible, reading the seventh seal of the angels of the apocalypse, that reminded me so much of the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, where the light is coming out of the window right before you see Gandalf on the top of the hill and coming down. And that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I never made that connection before. Wow, yeah, I'm going to have to give it a rewatch and, and watch some more, like, classic... I'm I'm going to rewatch the film anyway, because I need to show my fiancé this film. <laughs> it's just excellent. It's directly shown in The Last Action Hero, a film from the 80s or 90s, I think. Animaniacs, when we were growing up, did a couple references on it, and then Scrubs had a reference on it, too. And then I was watching WandaVision yesterday... Vision begins to turn and look at his hands like Antonius Block in the scene I was saying before after, you know, encountering death. And I think that gesture may come from the seventh seal where you have they're showing that whole kind of thing like, oh, if it's like a clone or if it's like a replicant or whatever, where you're like, okay, they're looking at their hands and they're noticing like the blood is pulsing through their veins. They feel alive. And I think that comes from this and themes again after this of course the silence of god is such a major theme throughout film and especially martin scorsese's film whether it be mean streets or i mean more specifically silence which is a highly underrated film that not many people saw but there is still so many things within this film that are being referenced today how do you think the seven seal can still relate to our generation I think it really is in the cinematography and in the form of Yoff and Mia. Being able, as a millennial myself and as a modern audience member, to look at that film and to see just the natural state of humanity. I mean, you see people sleeping in cots and dealing with nature and dealing with thunder and lightning and looking out at the world around them and not being certain about what these omens portend. So... I think we live in a very encapsulated world now where things are very plastic in a way. Mm. And it's not until you get out and maybe do camping or something along those lines where you really get out in nature where you can experience the entire spectrum of humanity. And I think a film like this really reminds you that to be human isn't just to react to our immediate surroundings, but it's also to react with nature as well. I honestly never made that connection. That's fascinating. There's so many different parts within this film where weather does make a massive impact and you're able to see how the people within the film react to that weather and how they are so connected to the world around them. I mean, it's really interesting. One of the deaths in the film is an actor falling off a tree. And when the tree falls, a squirrel goes on top of the stump. And that was completely not planned whatsoever. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have that part. Neat. The second part is when Raval ends up succumbing to the plague, it looks like it becomes mourning. That just happened. Wow. That just happened. So in a way, there are a lot of connections. And, and within theology, you know, there are Definitely, you know, and I'm sure you know this, there are connections and within medieval popular culture, especially when you look at King Arthur and Arthurian legends and how the idea of the king and how his prosperity is in direct relation to the land and that's prosperity. So you have those ideas within this film, again, being superimposed within, you know, medieval society with modern society and how, like you said before, we're still the same people that we were thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. But we are adapting with the times or creating more things about technology. And even with that, I think this film still says to people in the modern day, and we have a lot of people that are saying this now within nature, and let's get back to the things that we originally ate or whatever have you. But I think the whole kind of thing is maybe I've been seeing a lot of different themes throughout doing this show is that maybe we go back to the simplicity of humanity and push back 
the curtain of the boring stuff of our lives where we have these details where we think it's like super important when it really isn't. And we have to draw that back and see what the true nature of humanity is and how we can relate to everybody across the board. And I think that is a hard thing for our society right now, it being so divided. But with that, at the same time, we have to focus on the things that are right or wrong or the things that we need to look at and be like Antonius Block in a way and recognize the people that are suffering that aren't in the same position as we are and to help those people and to have a long-lasting impact that while you may not know that you're having right now, years later you have that kind of thing because he does recognize the hope and the future within Mikhail and decides to do something about his future and to affect his future for the rest of his life. He does, and he has this freedom to do it, in which I think we modern people are struggling with. Because we live in a very rigid world. Our rigidity puts us into boxes, as it were. We are so self-consumed within those boxes because we also make those boxes for ourselves. So we are almost jailing ourselves in a way and hunkering down with our ideas rather than exploring new ideas that could help us for the future. And you have this kind of thing where, in a way, with his doubt and with his feelings and thoughts about wanting to have that knowledge, he does free himself to a certain degree, while at the same time, he still boxes himself in because he feels that he deserves to have that knowledge. When Yoff just lives about his daily life and he's blessed with those visions because of his simplicity and his giving up of things like you have the idea of taking up the cross, which is a lot of the crusaders justified as going over to the crusades. And people think that they take up the cross in certain ways now where it's like, is that really helping people in the way that Jesus would want people to help? And with that, it's just really interesting to see how he eventually does. He uses Let me offer my castle to you guys. Let me offer my home and my hearth and the protection from the storm. Because at the beginning, remember what I said earlier is like he said, I can't really identify with other humans anymore because of what I did in the crusade. I can't really identify with them. So it's just massively interesting to see the shift of him being this kind of person where he's insular and he's focused on what's happening to him and him alone and then to later – realize with his experience with death that it's not about his experiences with death or with faith or with God and not seeing God and feeling the silence of God, but realizing that he's not the only one that's feeling that and he could be a way of people experiencing what God could do for them, even if they don't experience it themselves as Yaf does. Right, and all the same while, while he's experiencing this this roller coaster of emotions of saying, well, I have too much responsibility and I don't know what to do with it until the end where he's accepted death and he's accepted that responsibility taking people on. You have that directly contrasted with Yoff and Mia, who watch mm. from afar, who have been saved by their utter irresponsibility. Mm. What a surprising turn of events that is, watching <laughs> the dance of death off in the corner. But they've, through their simplicity, as it were, they're kind of saved. That's what the great thing about this movie is. You can talk forever and forever about all of the different little meanings because it is such a timeless movie with timeless themes and great performances and great music. It really is nearly a perfect film. And I think it is. And it's definitely has always been ever since I saw it. And um, this is like my first Criterion Collection movie, if you know uh, people about that kind of cult thing. <laughs> This was like such an eye-opener, and it was such an eye-opener to so many people in the 50s. Scorsese says that if you were a young person in the 50s and 60s, you were directly inspired by The Seventh Seal. I mean, if you were involved with the filmmaking, you were directly inspired by The Seventh Seal and what it was saying about the world and what it was saying about philosophy because it was a vessel. Like it was the proving point of – that film can be a vessel for philosophical ideas and the big questions that life brings. 
while at the same time being entertaining and being fully encapsulating for a wide audience. So why do you think millennials and the younger generations should watch The Seventh Seal? Wider audiences should absolutely view films like this to be able to look back at films in times where, like you're saying, introspection wasn't really a thing yet in film and to appreciate that for its historical value. Not only that, but it's also its entertainment value. It's, it's simply a good film. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with Oshin about Ingmar Bergman's philosophical masterpiece, The Seventh Seal. I really enjoyed this discussion and want to say thank you to Oshin for coming onto the show and bringing his historical and ecclesiastical knowledge into it. Please check out his publication, The Florida Gale, for local Floridian Irish American news. If you enjoyed this episode of Cinemillennials and want to watch the film we discussed, please check out my website, dloommoviereview.com, for more episodes of the podcast, film reviews, analyses, and where to purchase the film we discussed today. You could check out classicmoviehub.com's blog for my monthly column on what we discussed on the show, so please don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating as it helps more people find the podcast. Thank you.